You're listening to The Sweeper, the pan-European football podcast that brings you all the news and stories from the 55 UEFA countries. On this episode, we reflect on the quirkiest stories from late March and early April, including winless streaks for Alderney and San Marino, crazy scores in St. Kitts and Nevis, and the Exclave Club chasing promotion in Russia. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of The Sweeper, the podcast which looks in unrivaled and some may argue unnecessary depth at some of the most off-the-beaten track stories in global football. My name is Lee Wingate and I'm joined by my usual co-host Paul Watson, who at the end of our last podcast cited the 103-year winless streak of Channel Islanders Alderney as a storyline to watch over the international break. Paul, how about we start off by telling the listeners a little bit about the Marathi Vars and how Alderney got on in the latest edition? Sure. So, yeah, the Marathi Vars is a football competition for the Channel Islands. So every year there's a competition between Alderney, Guernsey and Jersey. And I think a lot of people are aware that Jersey and Guernsey play every year, but the semi-final often goes under the radar. Alderney, which is obviously a much smaller island, plays against one of Jersey or Guernsey. And the winner goes on to play the other one of Jersey or Guernsey. And sadly for Alderney, they haven't won in any fixture in this competition since 1920. So it's been a very long wait for Alderney. And it just got a bit longer because they lost 6-1 to Jersey, which is pretty creditable given how good Jersey are and how many more players Jersey have to call upon. But it's slightly uh, demoralising, I imagine, every year to have this defeat for them. Yeah, from what I can gather, Alderney only has about 2,000 people on the island. Is it something like that? Yeah, I think so. And I think one of the biggest problems that Alderney have is that they just don't have very many young people to call from. And it seems like that problem is perhaps getting more intense year after year. So it sounds like they struggled for players this year and they're having to call up players that perhaps were older and perhaps thought their playing days were over and they just don't have a lot of young players coming through and that's just simply because it's not a huge population and it's perhaps a slightly aging population in Alderney. We talked on the last episode about your lifelong mission to get your first international cap. This is FIFA unrecognised football but perhaps Alderney might be a great route for you to finally make your long-awaited international debut. You know, the funny thing is, a few years ago, I was pitched something by a production company, a documentary production company. The idea was that I would take on impossible football jobs because my first job was coaching the worst team in the world, technically. And so they tried to find these impossible challenges and they were mostly in war zones and things like that. So I wasn't particularly keen on this idea. But amongst this treatment was Alderney. And I think they had had a slight misjudgment of what that was going to be like. They had this idea that I'd try and get Alderney their first win in 100 years as it was at the time. I guess they must have assumed I could sort of naturalise players or, you know, but the the way they spoke about Alderney, it was as if I was taking on a club job. But the reality (laughs) is, I don't think any manager in the world could do an awful lot because it's somewhat San Marino syndrome. You've just got a very limited pool of players and Jersey and Guernsey are relative giants and have teams playing in the English league system. And so their players are just getting developed more and more each year. So it just seems like a very unequal fight, really. 
Yeah, it seems like the gap is widening, if anything. I know by this point, you've already been to the likes of Micronesia, Greenland and Transnistria to cover football. Am I right in thinking you also attended the Marathi Vars live at some point in recent years? Yeah, so I went to Alderney in 2016 and it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. So obviously the point of the commission, I was doing something for 442, the point of the commission was, you know, how long it had been since they won. And I think a part of me had expected it to be quite a low-key event. And what was amazing was all these fans showing up, you know, dressed in the blue of Alderney and the atmosphere was amazing. There's also this tiny little steam train that runs down a one, like one track to take fans to the game. It's just really an amazing, unique and beautiful stadium. On that day, they were playing Guernsey and they held Guernsey, I think, to a 1-0 defeat. It was really tight, a really tight game. And even though they'd lost, there was a sense that, you know, this was a really heroic effort. It all felt really positive, actually. And so I, so I love that this game still happens. I think the real sadness for me is they should have been in the Island Games this year, which is a real sort of outlook for them to get other games under their belt. And they have won at the Island Games. They've won matches there. I'm not sure how many, but they have definitely won games there. And they couldn't get a place this year because it's oversubscribed. So there was a lottery where something like 18 teams were getting 15 places and the hosts obviously are guaranteed in, it's in Guernsey and they drew it out and they were the unlucky ones. They were one of the, like they were the third reserve or something like that. So basically Oldney were the least lucky they could possibly be. And there was no chance they'd be at the Island games, which is a real shame because that's a really nice chance for them to compete against teams like, you know, the Falkland Islands and St. Helena. And, and, you know, you really think they might get a winner in a game like that. So it's, yeah, that was quite demoralising, I think, for them. Talking of teams that can't get a win under their belt and a place you've been to in the recent past on 442 duty as well, that's San Marino. I think you watched their goalish draw against the Seychelles. Yeah, that's that's right. I did. And I found that one <laughs> a bit of a bad sign because it felt like that was the game they'd set up specifically to finally get a win. And the fact that they couldn't, I think, was worrying. And then they played St. Lucia. They went on a quite probably very expensive tour of St. Lucia, played them twice and again couldn't get a win. They drew and lost. So coming into this European qualification campaign, I think was feeling pretty low in terms of how they would fare. That said, their best striker, Nicola Nani, has been injured and is finally back. And in fact, also, I think their other decent attacking outlet, Berardi, has been injured as well, Filippo Berardi, and he's back. So there was a sense that maybe there's a vague chance they could score a goal. And I believe someone predicted they'd beat Northern Ireland, did they not? Yeah, that might have been me. <laughs> it might have been a highly erroneous prediction. <laughs> Having said that, I did watch their game against Slovenia. So they lost 2-0 to Northern Ireland and then 2-0 to Slovenia. I think we had one Twitter user telling us that this is the first time in a Euro qualifier that they'd been nil-nil at half time in about six or seven years. So I suppose that in the grand scheme of things, that is progress. But still, of course, this long winless streak, which now stands at 128 games over a 19-year period, is still ongoing. So, yeah, you just wonder when that's going to end, really. I think they need another friendly or, you know, the Nations League provides an opportunity for them. Because obviously the sheer nature of qualification campaigns is that it's very unlikely that's where they'll get that win because of the seeding system. They're going to be playing against teams that are a lot higher ranked than them. I think, funnily enough, before this qualification campaign, they would look at Kazakhstan as, you know, let's take a shot. But actually, <laughs> something else might have happened there that we might mention. So um, they're probably not feeling as confident with Kazakhstan anymore. 
they seem to have gained quite a lot of notoriety online now for being the world's worst international team. They've developed a little bit of a cult following. And I think my question is, before we tick off San Marino here, will all of that limelight evaporate once they finally win again? Will the sort of mystique surrounding San Marino disappear? It might do. And I found this really interesting when I went to San Marino, is that the atmosphere in the stadium was pretty sedate. I think it's fair to say it was largely empty and it's not a massive stadium as it is. And a lot of the people that were there were kids from a soccer school who had seemingly been cajoled into going. And it was not an electric atmosphere. The ultras, the San Marino ultras, the Brigata Mauna Joya, which means like never any luck brigade, is this very small group of people who go to all their home games. But actually they're Italians who support San Marino in the kind of love of the underdog capacity. They were the ones singing the songs. The, uh, the rest of the stadium was more or less in silence. So it was really interesting seeing that compared to the online space, which was buzzing about this game. And it was people from the UK to Argentina to Brazil to Spain. And there were people all around the world online saying, our boys are going to get a win. But actually, it's very interesting to see how much that does feel like an online phenomenon. And if they did win, I think that probably would evaporate a fair bit because these people are not necessarily in love with San Marino for itself, but they're in love with the underdog story. I am a little bit worried. You talked about the online space there. I'm a little bit worried about the guy that runs the San Marino fan account on Twitter (laughs) because I feel like he's going to have some sort of heart attack or breakdown when they finally do get that win. It would be the perfect way to go out, wouldn't it? So yeah, some people might have seen it, some people not. But there's a, yeah, there is a San Marino fan account that's got a really good following now. And it's because whoever runs it just goes absolutely mad during games at the faintest sniff of an opportunity. I think they actually had the ball in the net against Northern Ireland. And that caused some sort of absolute meltdown before it was disallowed. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we do fear for the health of this person. That's the longest winless streaks in unrecognised and official football covered. So let's move on to some good news stories next. And the biggest source of those right now seems to be the Caribbean. Where do you want to start? St. Martin, Bonaire or the Turks and Caicos Islands? For me, St. Martin, it was an amazing group that they had in the Nations League. Now, St. Martin is an interesting place as it is. There's an island of St. Martin and it's half French, half Dutch. So there's St. Martin, the French side, St. Martin the Dutch side. And you probably know this island, even if you don't know, you know it, because it's where planes have to go so low over the beach that it looks like they're landing on the beach. It looks like a Photoshop. You sometimes see this photo. And it's this amazing island, really, in that St. Martin, the Dutch side, managed to win their Nations League group, which was an absolutely bizarre group. It included one of the most amazing reverses of fortunes I've ever seen. Simmatan beat Turks and Caicos Islands 8-2, and then three days later lost 2-0 to them, which is a really <laughs> unheard of reverse. And this group was absolutely bizarre. So then Simmatan beat Bonaire 6-1, and it went into the final game. They beat the US Virgin Islands 2-1 to win it. And what's amazing really about it is Simmatan are not FIFA recognised. So they're in CONCACAF competitions, but they've not managed to get FIFA recognition. And they're actually taking... FIFA through the Court of Arbitration for Sport at the moment to try and get FIFA recognition, which, funnily enough, Bonaire, one of the teams they played during the competition, also tried to do but failed. So it doesn't look particularly positive for St. Martin on that front. But yeah, there's this very strange situation that a non-FIFA team won the CONCACAF group against the likes of Turks and Caicos and US Virgin Islands, who are obviously right at the bottom of the FIFA rankings, but are FIFA recognised. Do we have a quick mention for Bonaire as well? 
Yeah, so Bonaire played their first ever home game. Bonaire was part of the Netherlands Antilles, but then the Netherlands Antilles dissolved relatively recently. I think it was around 2010. And since then, Bonaire has been playing independently, but it's not been allowed to play on their home stadium. They've been playing actually in Curaçao. But they got their first ever home game and it was all very exciting for them to be able to play this home game. But sadly, they lost <laughs> to Turks and Caicos. And as I say, Bonaire have been in this very interesting fight with FIFA and this tiny island really relatively has been trying to take on the might of FIFA to get FIFA status, but has been unsuccessful and, and its appeal was unsuccessful. But it all enters into this really grey area of what constitutes a country and what constitutes a nation, but within the Kingdom of Holland. And that becomes really dry. And <laughs> well, maybe that would be better on a legal podcast. To bring it back to Europe and UEFA football now, we couldn't complete this international roundup without a shout out for Kazakhstan. They have made quite a few headlines in recent years. They gained promotion in two of their three Nations League campaigns so far, but they've totally surpassed themselves now over this international break beating a highly regarded Denmark side 3-2, and they came from two goals down to do it. Did you see the equalising goal in this game, Paul? No, I didn't. I didn't. I actually, funnily enough, was following that game until it was 2-0 Denmark, and then I thought, oh, I can leave that. <laughs> what happened? You've got to talk me through this. It all went off. I mean, I'm just going to take you through the equalising goal because I think it got voted the best UEFA goal of the March international break. So I'll try and paint a mental picture for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. So Kazakhstan are 2-1 down. It's the 86th minute. They've already lost their previous home qualifier a few days earlier to Slovenia. So everything's on the line here. And a player called Askat Bergen picks the ball up. It's about 10 metres outside the Danish penalty area, but really far over on the left as well. And he just hammers it like a rifle. Like that trajectory, it, the ball just went straight into the top corner. It was a really wonderful goal. And then they went on to score another one a few minutes later and probably get, I would say, one of the best results in their history. It's got to be, hasn't it? It's absolutely got to be. What an astonishing achievement for Kazakhstan. I mean, I saw actually, hate to plug your work or our own work, but you did an amazing thread on football in Kazakhstan. And you're quite right that it's a place that, people tend to know very little about, myself included. And it almost seems quite strange. You have to have a moment sometimes to remember they're in UEFA. If you haven't seen the thread on Twitter yet, that's because they're sort of one of these seven transcontinental countries in UEFA, which means they're sort of straddling Europe and Asia, and they can therefore choose which one they want to be in. They chose in 2002 to be in Europe because they thought that would be better for their football development. And you have to say that that's sort of a justified choice when you look at some of the recent results. And I think what makes their progress even more impressive is that over the last international break, they did it with only five players based outside the Kazakh Premier League. Very impressive. That really is. Imp yeah. And I think that's an interesting choice because they could have tried to go through the AFC route and maybe there would have been short-term results there because there are probably easier sides to beat. But maybe this was the shrewd long-term play. That said, it also does make qualification for anything very difficult. Whereas maybe in AFC, they would have had more of a chance. That's true. Do you know who they've got in their next game, Paul? It's not San Marino yet, is it? It is. It is. It San is. Marino. Oh, okay. That's the big one. And as I said, San Marino fans were definitely regarding that as you know, this could be the one. I think you only have to watch those last few minutes against Denmark and they probably won't feel that quite so strongly now. One last story I wanted to mention on this international roundup is Gibraltar, which was one of only four UEFA nations to call up fewer overseas-based players than Kazakhstan for their March fixtures against Greece and the Netherlands, which both ended in 3-0 defeats. 
One of those players plays for Cadiz in Spain. One plays, I think, for Matlock Town in the English seventh tier. And I thought that would be the lowest level club represented in this international break. But it's not because there was a player, Nils Hartmann, who represents Loughborough Students FC from the United Counties Premier League Division North, the ninth tier of English football. And he made his debut in the game against Greece. You do get this with some of the Caribbean sides. And, you know, it's not unheard of to have players who are really far down the English league structure, I think, being called up. But for a UEFA nation to be doing that is kind of amazing. I don't know if it happened with more than one player, but I saw that a Wickham player, TJ DeBart, turned down the call-up for Gibraltar. And I found that interesting, that I think Gibraltar may be having a bit of a problem that players are either being pressurised or feeling themselves like they can't take the call-up, which I don't know would be happening if this was an Italy call-up. But obviously, when you have players at lower levels of the league structure, maybe they are either playing more matches, so they're getting more tired, and more injury problems, or they feel under a pressure from the clubs not to accept those call-ups. I, I don't know. Maybe they've got less leverage. To quickly finish off the international roundup while sticking with Gibraltar, I just want to mention a record that's been broken by Lee Casciaro, an age record for UEFA qualifiers. In the game against Greece, he became the oldest player in almost 40 years to feature in a UEFA qualifier at the age of 41 years and 176 days. But what I found really funny about this record is that Zlatan Ibrahimovic would have broken it on the same night. He's four days younger than Casciaro. He played on the same night in one of Sweden's internationals, but he missed out on the record by four days, which I found quite amusing, really. That is funny. What a claim to fame as well, Lee, to be able to say... Well, I beat beat Zlatan Ibrahimovic to a record. Interestingly, Roberto Di Maio, who was playing for San Marino, made his debut at the age of 40. He's a naturalised Italian, so he naturalised San Marino and and then, yeah, made a debut at 40. So he isn't far off that. And yeah, he was making his sort of first cap, which is quite an amazing story. That will do for our international roundup then. But if you're keen to find out more about the likes of Alderney and Kazakhstan, as Paul mentioned, we've got some jam-packed Twitter threads on our page at SweeperPod. For now, we'll take a short musical break and then turn our attentions back to club football to talk about the April Fool's joke we almost fell for, Dutch pitch invasions, and last but not least, St. Kitts and Nevis second tier. You're listening to part two of The Sweeper, where we, much to the relief of all the international football haters out there, turn our focus back to the club game. And I'd actually planned to start this segment by talking about an article I'd read about Norway's Elite Zerian, which was apparently set to allow spectator voting on VAR decisions on the first match day of the season. The article said the public can register and vote on decisions where VAR intervenes in the event of disagreement. The weighting is 70% the people's jury and 30% an expert panel, according to Chief Judge Terje Hauger. And I thought that all sounded very legit and interesting myself until I saw the date, which was April Fool's Day. You totally had me going. When you suggested we talk about that, I thought, wow, weird, weird, but believable initiative. And I think we leave ourselves open to this because what we normally talk about is pretty weird. (laughs) That yep. it's hard for us to be able to see if something's an April Fool's joke. It sounds like as good a system as any, let's be honest. 
I think it's a bit of a shame. I would, I would have quite enjoyed that. I mean, it would have been heavily biased, but just for one match day as an experiment, I would love to have seen how that turned out. I think they should have tried it. I'm open to more wild versions to solve the VAR problem. I think, you know, anything that, that involves a little bit of audience participation, I think I'm all in favour. Can you think of any other football-related April Fool's jokes that you've fallen for or you've seen over the years? Anything spring to mind? Oh, that's a very good question. I remember well, when I used to work for Football Italia, we had the discretion to put out April Fool's jokes, but we often got such a backlash from them that we were told to make them so absolutely obvious. But I remember I got done, I think, by a Gazetta one, and I re-reported it because it was like not ridiculously stupid. And those are the ones that get me, the ones that are like, okay, that's a bit silly, but it's not so stupid that you made the person look look crazy. But yeah, I don't tend to fool them because now Twitter's just, it's so obvious they're April Fool jokes usually on Twitter, isn't it? Because it's like, it's, I think social media's killed that whole game, really. Yeah. yeah. Have you fallen for any apart from this one? I can't, I can't remember. Yeah, I certainly have. A few years ago, uh, as part of my work on Austrian football, so I also make the other Bundesliga podcast, if anyone wants to find out a little bit more about a lesser-known top 10 European league, we found an article saying that an Alpenliga was about to be introduced or was going to be introduced in the near future. And the idea behind that is basically to combine the Austrian and Swiss leagues together, which has actually been talked about. But this article said that that was actually going to happen in the near future. And we got very excited thinking, wow, that sends Austria straight to a probably the sixth biggest league in Europe, maybe after if you have a, a combined Austrian and Swiss effort. But that quickly turned out to be an April Fool's joke. So, yeah, it has happened before. You see, for me, that's that's, you know, that's the level of joke, a bit like I was saying with the Gazetta ones. It's like it's not stupid enough to make you sit and think, oh. Wait a minute. Like the level of stupid that I want to fall for is that they're doing that league proposal, but it's also kind of Liechtenstein in it. And Liechtenstein are <laughs> going to have like most of the teams. That's the level where I want to fall for that. And then in the retelling, suddenly realize how stupid it's. <laughs> but yeah, I don't think there's any dishonor in falling for one that's subtle like that. At least we didn't lead the podcast with the <laughs> Norwegian top flight is introducing fan voting and genuinely believed it. So at least we've got that on our side. Uh, let's move on to some of our stories in this segment now. And I want to start by talking about the weird and wacky goings on in the Welsh top tier, because there are some really interesting narratives developing there. You've literally got Europe's best team and Europe's worst team domestically in the same league, which already for me is a talking point. So you have the new Saints who have already become the champions of Wales. They are the third domestic champion across the continent after Lincoln Red Imps and Hammer and Spartans, who we talked about last time. They are also the only top flight European club to have broken the 100 goal barrier this season with 101 goals. And about 13 of them, I think, came against Airbus Broughton, who are the worst team in Europe. They, as we have reported on this podcast before, actually have minus points because they only picked up one draw all season and they were then deducted three points for a previous infringement. There's actually been another deduction. So they are now down on minus five points, which is getting close to sort of a European record, I think. Uh, that's because they broke the rules on youth substitutes. I think the rules in Wales state that clubs must include academy players on their bench and a fourth substitute must be an academy player. And they broke that rule. So they are now down on minus five points. Still winless, by the way. Still the only top flight club in Europe 
without a win. So I just think, how weird is it that you've got literally the best and the worst club, both in Wales? That's absolutely amazing. I think I might have a club with a more depressing season. And I don't say that lightly. So we're going down now. We're not in a top flight by any means. But in Italy, in the fifth division, the Eccellenza, in Molise, which Molise probably one of the least known parts of Italy too. In fact, I think in Italy, as a saying, Molise doesn't exist because nobody ever talks about Molise. Well, here we are. <laughs> Campo di Pietra, who play in the Italian fifth division in Molise, played 26, lost 26, scored four, conceded 209. And wow. then they got a two-point deduction, which leaves them now minus two points. I don't know if that's more or less depressing, but it's quite staggering. <laughs> Although 209 goals. Yeah, and interestingly, now I think this is happening a fair bit in Italy. So I learned this stat that 17 teams in Italy's non-league have conceded over 100 goals already this season. Sticking with the theme of a team shipping goals left, right and centre, we got a great story brought to our attention by Will Whitby on Twitter about the St. Kitts and Nevis second division. Some crazy scorelines here as well, Paul. Spare a thought for the fortunes of Molineo. They're currently bottom of the table with five defeats from five games and a minus 41 goal difference. And some of their defeats are quite remarkable scorelines. They lost 17-0 to the Dieppe Bay Eagles recently and 14-0 to the Trafalgar South Stars. So some quite horrendous hidings for them there. Brilliant names, though. Uh, I could be a Trafalgar South Stars ultra. That's a brilliant name for a club. I think it's kind of continuing the theme of brilliant Caribbean names. We've talked about a few, haven't we, on recent episodes. I think you brought up a couple. Awesome FC and St. Vincent and the Grenadines, who are completely average, and um, Positive <laughs> FC and the British Virgin Islands, who are rock bottom. <laughs> well, there's actually a club in St. Kitts and Nevis that is true to its name, Hard Times United. They play in the same league as Molineux, and they've only won one game all season. So they have yeah, actually stayed true to their name. That is an amazing name for a club, Hard Times FC. <laughs> There's a few other quite good ones in St. Kitts and Nevis as well. You have Rivers of Living Water, Construction Lodge Patriots, Fast Cash Saddlers United, which I like, Security Forces United, and Garden Hotspurs as well. Those are brilliant. What a league for names. I've got to watch more football from there. Yeah, try and find a stream that's not interrupted by a primary school sports day, which I saw you tweet about this week. Yeah, so this happened in Anguilla. We always like to follow Anguilla, being right at the bottom of the FIFA rankings. There's a lot of fun stories there. And one of the clubs, Uprising FC, posted on their Twitter that, sadly, fans who have been tuning in to watch the stream of their game against Roaring Lions were going to be disappointed because a school sports day had taken priority. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, I love the thought of people tuning in you know, from all over the world and instead just getting to see the egg and spoon race. They did actually lose 4-0 to Roaring Lions, so maybe it was for the best. Maybe it is for the best in that situation, but generally think of the pressure resting on the shoulders of those young kids as they prepare (laughs) for their egg and spoon races and 100 metres. I don't know what else is in a primary school sports day, but imagine the sort of pressure to perform that they'll feel knowing that elite level football in their country has been cancelled solely for them. It's brilliant, isn't it? I mean, it's absolutely amazing. What if any of those kids are starting to get sort of global fame as a result? I don't know. <laughs> I just loved it. I mean, all this, all the messaging was just really sincere. You know, we can't apologise more. But I was just thinking, what a brilliant reason to not have a stream. <laughs> it's just, I, I can't imagine anyone being angry at that. 
Last but not least for this segment, we've got a story from the Netherlands, which might be the only country to have featured on every single one of our podcasts so far. Usually it's for their high scoring games, but I've got something a little bit different today. Pitch Invaders. So before the international break, there was a video doing the rounds on Twitter of a very angry spectator coming onto the pitch on a motor scooter in the Dutch eighth tier in a game between Veenhuizen and Vitesse 63. He lives nearby and was very disgruntled at the fact that fireworks had been set off directly before kickoff. And they had apparently unsettled his horses, who were very startled. And so he protested in the only way he seemingly saw fit, by waiting until the game had kicked off, driving his motor scooter onto the pitch, stopping at the dugout to have a quick word with the Van Hoosen coach and team manager, then going all the way to the centre circle to protest with one of the players before disappearing again. I just love that. I'd like to see more of it. <laughs> well, there is more. It's not an isolated case in the Netherlands right now because higher up the pyramid in the Erste Divisie, the second tier, there was a match recently between Heracles and Almera City. And that was halted shortly before half time because the away coach, Alex Pastor, stepped onto the pitch in a bid to hurry up a substitution. So his team were a player down due to injury, and he was desperate to hang on to the 1-0 lead they had and get his new player on the pitch as soon as possible. He stepped on the field of play the first time. The referee sort of looked over but ignored it, and then he did it again, at which point the ref had no alternative but to run over and show him a yellow card. But I thought, you don't see that very often, do you? Managers sort of trying to infringe upon the field of play to get the game stopped. Maybe we should see more of that. That feels like you something don't. that... Is yeah. it only a yellow card? Because <laughs> you sort of think if it's just a yellow, you tactically maybe take one of those every now and again. Yeah, maybe I should double check that. I think it was a yellow anyway, but it certainly didn't help his team because that was right at the end of the first half. And by the end of first half stoppage time, they'd conceded. So it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't ultimately successful. Uh, that will do for part two anyway. We'll be back shortly with a special podcast announcement and a chat about some of the most exciting promotion races developing across the continent. Welcome back to the third and final part of today's episode, which we'd like to kick off with some exciting news. The Sweeper podcast, we can now proudly say, is sponsored by the good people at Surprise Shirts, a family-run mystery football shirt business based in the UK that specializes in niche and random football shirts from all over the world, which I'm sure you'll agree makes them the perfect partner for us. The Surprise Shirts range includes everything from the Anguillan Football League to the Zimbabwean second tier and a whole lot in between too. And the best part in our eyes, you don't know what you're going to get. You simply place your order at www.surpriseshirts.co.uk and Surprise Shirts will send you a mystery box containing the jersey of a club based outside your home country, along with a fun fact all about the team in question. If you're looking to avoid a certain team, you can let them know. And if you don't like the mystery option, you can handpick a specific shirt from their range via the sister site, www.selectshirts.co.uk. We actually have a mystery box here at Sweeper HQ right now, and Paul is going to open it, read out the fun fact card on air, and then we're going to pretend we know something about the club in question. Let me pop it open and we'll see if we have any idea what we're dealing with. <laughs> wow. It's made by Kelme, the ones... Um, I've had some deals with Kelme before. 
they have that sort of dog print. I think it's a dog, it's a paw print, anyway, is it? Maybe it's a bear print sort of logo. I don't um, have a clue what that is, Paul. I'm it's harder for you, Lee, because I've got it literally in front of me. So I've at least got some. So it's, I can tell you the letters on the badge are UDFC. The sponsor is Chang, you know, the beer Chang. Uh-huh. And it seems like the lettering on it, now that, it's in Thai. I know that's the Thai ah. language. And at this point, I've got to admit, I'm a bit stumped. <laughs> read out the fun fact card then and see what it says. All right, I'll read the fun fact card. It will, it will tell us who the club is. I think we have to concede we will not get this. The pod will have to be six hours long to get this one. <laughs> so it's Udon Tani FC. And they are a Thai club from the northeastern city of the same name, Udon Thani. Founded in 1999, the Orange Giants currently compete in Thai League 2. They play their matches at the SAT Stadium, or the SAT Stadium, which can hold 10,000 fans. The Orange Giants wore this striking away shirt in the Thai League 2 when finishing in 8th place. They've completely <laughs> puzzled us there. Can't offer any shirt. insight. Yeah. No, I offer zero insight. What I'll tell you is it's, it's a beautiful shirt, and it's a sort of pinky yellowy oh yeah it's the kind of shirt i would definitely wear to five aside and have people look at me and i'll be really smug and tell them how about you know don't you know this team finished eighth in thai league two last season (laughs) well listeners will be delighted to hear that we will be giving said thai shirt away on our twitter and instagram channels at sweeper pod in the coming days so keep an eye out for that and if you like the idea of a mystery box for yourself head on over to www.surpriseshirts.co.uk and place your order Boxes are priced at $35.99 for adults and $26.99 for kids. And listeners get an extra 10% off with the discount code SWEEPER, all in capital letters. We're going to talk about some exciting promotion races and contenders across Europe in this segment. And Paul, I'm going to pass over to you first to talk about Victor San Marino, who I believe have clinched a promotion in Italy. Yeah, if you thought you'd seen off San Marino for this podcast, then you failed. It's coming back. Yeah, so... San Marino has a club team as well as a national team. And it's gone through various iterations. They've folded and restarted on various occasions over the years. This current one is Victor San Marino, who are victors this year. They are being promoted from, again, the Eccellenza, from the fifth division in Italy. They're being promoted to Serie D, uh, the fourth division, logically. Uh, And they should win the title as well. I think they haven't mathematically won the title, but they are uh, promoted. And um, it's an interesting little quirk, this, that there is a club based in San Marino. Just one is allowed into the Italian league system from San Marino. And they'll be competing against other teams from the Emilia-Romagna region of Italy because it's all regional at that level. And this club, interestingly, has the old San Marino head coach, the guy who sort of made them famous for not winning, effectively. Sounds bad, but <laughs> the, the, the guy who was a PE teacher, Gianpaolo Mazza, he was a PE teacher who was charged with sort of running the San Marino team when they first started and ran them for years. I think he only ever got that one win in 2004. I think he was still in charge for that. But basically, he coached the team for many years, Gianpaolo Mazza. And he's the guy in charge of the, the coaching sort of overview for this team. So he's like the technical director for this Victor San Marino team. But what is interesting as well is a lot of the players are Italian. I don't think most of the players in the club are San Marinese. So it's a really interesting football quirk, this this kind of club in the Italian league system who are a San Marino club who also have a lot of Italian players. What is also interesting is that the San Marinese league system is, is amateur, technically, whereas this club is 
semi-professional and could become professional, say they were to go up enough echelons. So a, a San Marino club have been as high as 10th in the third tier in Italian football. So it is quite an interesting dynamic that theoretically this club could end up competing at a higher level than San Marinese players would normally get to compete. But actually at the moment, the best players in San Marino are playing in Serie C, so third level. So actually at this stage, that's not the case, that these are the highest performing San Marinese players. To move from one geographical outsider to another, I want to talk a little bit now about Baltica Kaliningrad in the second tier in Russia. So for those of you who don't know, they're based in a Russian exclave, which is sandwiched between Poland and Lithuania, about 400 kilometers from mainland Russia. They've only ever spent three seasons in the Russian Premier League, but they are on course for promotion now. They're six points clear. You may have also seen them mentioned on our Twitter account at some point for being involved in the longest league away day of any professional club worldwide. That's the 14,040 kilometer round trip as the crow flies to Khabarovsk in the far east. But I think the journeys that they are now undertaking during this promotion bid are even longer than they would have been before because of the closure of airspace due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which means that Baltica cannot fly over Lithuania or Belarus or any of the Baltic states. And they now have to go up over the Baltic Sea, round towards St. Petersburg, then back down towards Moscow and then get basically a second flight from wherever they're then headed to for their away game from Moscow. So from a sporting point of view, given that they have to make that extra journey, they have done well to top the Russian second tier this season. And yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if they make it into the top flight. As I say, they were in the Russian Premier League some 25 years ago, but there hasn't been a team based outside the Russian mainland in the top flight ever since. So that will be uh, interesting to follow their progress over the next couple of months. We've also got some promotion updates from the British Isles. I know you've got some news from Wales, I think, haven't you? The second tier in Wales. Yeah, I was going to congratulate Hollywell Town, who have racked up 25 consecutive wins in the Cymru North League, which is a pretty impressive feat, isn't it? Yeah, that was my that was my little nugget of Welsh information that popped my way over the week. Yeah, I believe as well, though, that they're not top of the table, despite oh. those 25 wins. Yeah, they're second and Colwyn Bay are top. So it, that is quite something, isn't it, when you think about it, that this run has only seen them still three points short of first place. Yeah, it makes me wonder because they were winless in their first three games of the season and then they went on this 25-game winning streak. Sorry, And I'm thinking, like, who did they sign after those three winless games at the end of August? Who did they sign that has enabled them to win 25 games in a row? It actually made me think of Father Ted and, you know, Romeo Sensini, the sensation (laughs) in the football match. Who is their Romeo Sensini that Hollywell has signed to completely turn the season around? (laughs) <laughs> this story actually reminds me a little bit of we talked about the Luxembourg League where Swift Esperange were unbeaten at some point, the only unbeaten team in Europe at the time, and they still weren't top of their league. And yeah, I guess it's a similar situation here in the, the Cymru North, the second division of Welsh football. Yeah, we'd love to hear from any Hollywell Town fans who want to get in touch. Yeah, let us let us know which um, which player is representing their sort of flamboyant uh, is, is he Italian priest? I think he was a, the Italian. Yeah, but yeah Italian. let us know. Let us know who it is who's rocketed them to this sensational run. 
A couple of quick updates now then from Scotland and from Northern Ireland. In Scotland, Queen's Park are the oldest club and they turned professional in 2019 after 152 years as an amateur club. And ever since then, it has been one promotion after another. They won Scotland's fourth tier in 2021. They went up via the third tier playoffs in 2022. And now they're top of the Scottish Championship. I think they've had a little wobble recently. They've lost their last two games. But that would be some story, wouldn't it? Three consecutive promotions potentially to reach the top flight. In Northern Ireland, meanwhile, you have a semi-pro club, Lofgall FC, who are top of the table by six points and on course to return to the Northern Irish Premiership for only the second time ever. I think what I find quite interesting about them is that they're from a village of 282 people, which (laughs) would then make them the club from the smallest settlement in Europe to have a top flight representative. Uh, which at the moment is a title held, I believe, unknowingly by the village of Stramnes in the Faroe Islands, which has 320 inhabitants. But Lofgall could soon break that record. That's amazing, isn't it? That's one of those ones where it's very possible for the entire population to go to a game. In fact, it wouldn't even be a good travelling support. <laughs> it would be, yeah. be an average travelling support. <laughs> yeah, it would. Amazing. It would. Um, I think that's everything on the agenda for this episode. Any other business, Paul? Any updates on the Micronesian futsal tournament? Any Anything else oh, to add? Well, big update is we got footballs to Koshirai. The island that had never had a football has a football now. It arrived through a series of complicated transactions, but we managed to send footballs to Guam, and those footballs were then taken on by someone going on business to Koshirai. And so they are there. They now have footballs, which will be useful, I think, when training for a futsal competition. Yeah, I was thinking to myself, you said they're a football. I was thinking, imagine just getting their first ever football and then booting it straight into the sea. <laughs> yeah, we sent them six to be safe, but I, I wouldn't rule out six. I mean, they're also they're playing futsal, so they're indoors. But again, you know, <laughs> let's not lose these ones, guys, because it took us three months to get them there. <laughs> yeah, quite some considerable effort. We'll leave it there for this episode then. You may have noticed we diverted from our usual pattern of recording every fortnight and left three weeks in between this episode and the last pod. That was simply because of the international break and we wanted to have some club football material in there too. So don't worry, we will be back in another fortnight to look at all the randomness, quirkiness and strangeness of the beautiful game. Thank you so much, by the way, to all the people who took it upon themselves to rate us on their podcast platform of choice. If you haven't done that yet, or you perhaps have only recently discovered the pod through our guest appearances on the Guardian Football Weekly or the Scouted Football Podcast, please do take a moment to rate us. All you have to do is drag the number of stars to whatever you think we deserve on your podcast platform, and that's a big help for us. As is hitting the follow button on your podcast app, and that's not just because we want more followers. Twitter is our main method of podcast distribution at the moment, and just in case the mad Elon Musk takes it down with him, it would be great to know that most of our listeners are already following the podcast and that our content will automatically reach you. And finally, a big thanks to everyone who is tuning in to listen to us, interacting with us, DMing us on Twitter, or sending us emails with topic requests or interesting stories for the pod. You can do that at sweeperpod at gmail.com. We really do value those because obviously we can't monitor all of global football ourselves. Uh, that will do for this pod. Big thanks also to Surprise Shirts. Have a lovely day and we'll catch you soon. You've been listening to The Sweeper, the pan-European football podcast. If you like what you've heard, 
come and follow us on Twitter at SweeperPod and leave a review for us on your podcast platform of choice. Special thanks go to the Gentleman Creatives Design Agency in Vienna, Austria for their amazing graphics and logos. You'll find them too if you come to our Twitter page. 